Digital Marketing Radio, episode 201. Sight speed in a mobile first world. DigitalMarketingRadio.com Hello, hello and welcome to the third in a three-part series of Digital Marketing Radio episodes recorded live at the Search London Meetup. A special episode sequence helping to celebrate reaching the milestone of 200 episodes of Digital Marketing Radio. In this episode 201, we hear the talk given by Pete Campbell from Kaizen. Why brands need to focus on site speed in a mobile first world. Like Nicholas Stott's talk in the last episode, this episode will be good to listen to, but even better if you also view the slides at the same time. Uh, you can do that by going over to digitalmarketingradio.com slash episode 201. So in this episode, Pete talks about things like new developments in speed technology, what a slow site costs you financially, and results from a big site speed study looking at the top 700 e-commerce sites in the UK. And most importantly, how to make your site a whole lot faster. So let's go straight back to the event at Search London and Pete Campbell. So I first want to ask you a question just to see if anyone else uh, faces this situation. Nothing to do with SEO. It's a very intangible link, this. Um, does anyone ever see a bus or a train approaching a platform, run for it, and then instantly miss it and then have to wait in agony for 10 minutes? Is anyone there? One person, two people. Okay, well clearly you're nowhere near as impatient as I am because I spent half of my life doing it. And it even, even happened to me on the way here today, so it's quite embarrassing. And the whole thing reminded me, which is, that was a useless metaphor, it reminded me of how rubbish uh, it is using the internet on your mobile phone, basically. You have this hope and aspiration that you're just going to get a bit of information, or you're going to do a transaction, and it's just going to load instantaneously fast. And... Consumers expect web pages, apparently, to load under two seconds. But the dark truth is, is that retail sites load in an average of 10 seconds, which doesn't sound like much, but to me it is absolute bloody agony. Imagine if I just stood here silent for 10 seconds. That would be really awkward, but I won't do that. And um, the problem is, compounding this even further, is that you know everyone knows now that mobile usage overtook the desktop over three years ago. But when you look at how retailers are doing in terms of speed optimization, it's typically more often than less that the mobile site is slower than the desktop site. So you turn into guys like this. But it's not all terrible bad news. In general, we are seeing internet speeds in the UK improving. Fiber optic broadband's around 40 megabytes now, and on mobile, it's about 24 megabytes improving year on year. Maybe this is why some retailers are just slacking in terms of speed, really. And in terms of speed tech, there's a whole bunch of interesting innovations. I'm going to go through some of these in more detail, and I'll gauge the room in terms of who knows what. And also, there are obviously a lot of different ways in which you can improve your site speed. But to count for the room, um, some of these, even if they are familiar, um, there's a lot of, I'm going to basically talk about the things the tools don't tell you and the ways in which it goes wrong and how to implement some of these things at scale, basically. And hopefully make the case to you to why brands should need to focus on site speed more and more so in a mobile first world. Um, so 
sales pitch. So I run a business called Kaizen, we're a team of 10 based over in Hipster, East London, I would have a beard if I could grow one. Um, we, could, we work with some interesting clients, I think we're pretty good at what we do. You can be the judge of that in the next 20 minutes. Um, and if you are interested in these slides, they're already available online. So if you want to take a note of kaizensearch.co.uk forward slash site, speed hyphen deck, you can get them there. I was hiding at the back when I came in updating them. So we'll see how this goes now. Um, so I'm going to make a case first to why I think it all matters. So basically retailers are money away. They're burning money in terms of how not, they're not focusing on site speed. You know, according to a study by Kiss Metrics, slow running websites are costing retailers up to 1.73 billion in lost sales every single year. And 79% of shoppers, according to another study, will, if they don't like your site performance, they'll switch off basically, and they will not buy from you again. One of my favorite episodes ever of The Simpsons, that clip. And it's a simple thing. If your site's faster, it converts better. And studies have shown this again and again and again. And one speed can make all the difference. And you can see there in a now broken slide, and a faster full site load will actually lead to a lower bounce rate. So you can't see that. There's about a difference of uh, 2.4 seconds if the page loads up to three seconds faster. So I wanted to get a bit of a gauge of, in the UK, as a digital marketing industry, and e-commerce, how fast are the kind of biggest e-commerce sites in the UK? So I partnered up with SimilarWeb to ask them, send me 1,000 sites, guys. It turns out there's not actually 1,000 good e-commerce websites. Um, so we cut about, out about 300, including in the top 1,000 list are sites which aren't .co.uk. So like Amazon.island, well, not Ireland, sorry. You know, Amazon.ca is in the top 1,000, for example. So we cut back to 700. And I wanted to get a bit of sense of how they're doing in terms of speed. So. We built quite an interesting Google Sheet that looked at a couple of things. So the first thing was the page speed insight score. Also, we got an idea of the homepage size, how fast the page takes to load, and also whether or not the page actually uses HTTP, the site actually uses HTTP2 or not. And we also got an idea of whether the site is secure. And I then did a comparison index. So based on um, where we found there was the greatest correlation between all the data sets, and we kind of weighted which ones we felt were most important in terms of speed and what people should be focusing on. And then here you can see essentially the top 20 results. So we do have the full list of 700 here that we will be publishing in a very nice parallax scrolling infographic in about a month from now. But essentially you can get a bit of a sense of the, out of that list there, there's not many huge players, as in huge e-commerce players. You know, there's not many in terms of department stores like your ASOSs or your Amazons and in, at least in the top 20. And my kind of gut instinct on that is essentially down to the fact that these more specialist retailers that are particular niche tend to have smaller marketing teams maybe. Got, and also they have a lot less URLs, maybe they're in the millions rather than the billions. So therefore, speed is an issue because it can be addressed a little bit easier. And um, one of the things that we did when we realized we were building this, and we did for all 700 sites, is we thought it'd be interesting to actually let anyone use this um, site speed Google Sheet. So um, one way in which we're using this tool now is that we're actually able to do um, competitor analysis if we've got a client and then we can put in four different domains and we can see against each other which the site speed is doing and also if we can run it, we can do the site speed check for hundreds and up to thousands of URLs. So I don't have it ready yet, but if you want to register interest for the Google Sheet, I call it tool, it's Google Sheet, that we're making and basically what it does is it looks at the page speed insights API, looks at the Pingdom API, a HTTP2 API that I've forgotten the name of and other, a couple of others there. So we'll make that available. Hopefully you can use that to do site speed audits on your website at scale yourselves and not break the sheet. And yeah, okay, great. So 
to go through the actual data in a little bit more detail, so I'm going to show you a few comparisons here between um, sample sets of the different websites that we looked at. So on average here, you can see, as I said in the start, on average, mobile sites are performing worse for speed optimization than we are seeing on desktop. So I wanted to look at this a little bit more detail. So I got a list of the top 50 retailers by revenue in the UK to see how are they doing when compared against each other. And Debenhams, ironically, ranks worst for mobile page speed, despite the fact that 64% of their web traffic is mobile. And this is the case that I'm seeing again and again and again, that their speed is worse than mobile, but the majority of their traffic and customers come from mobile. So the mindset hasn't quite shifted yet. I hope no one from Debenhams works here, but if you do, I'm sorry. But, and for that same kind of set of um, 50, unsurprisingly, maybe surprising to some, all of them have some form of mobile site now. But interestingly, what I would call maybe slightly edging and archaic, still use like a subdomain to serve the mobile site instead of a responsive site, which in my opinion is best practice, maybe not yours, but we'll see. And when you look at that set as a whole, um, UK retailers' homepage are actually larger than the average page on the web. So. Hopefully you can see again and again, there's a lot of little site speed obvious things there, which as the e-commerce industry in the UK here is doing, is going against that. And lastly is HTTP2. So I just want to get a gauge of who here knows what HTTP2 is. The obvious people are putting their hand up and some people I don't know. But it's good that the majority don't because it makes my slide more relevant. So um, at the moment, 8% of the top UK retailers actually have HTTP2 enabled on their site. But elsewhere, 12% of the web benefits. Um, this is growing at like 0.2, 0.3% a month. Over the course of been making these slides every month, you've seen I've had to update that number. And uh, essentially, to give you a bit of a beginner's guide to HTTP2, the best way to think of it is essentially it's the latest version of the HTTP protocol. The business case for doing it is that it potentially can make your site faster by enabling it. And it is used proportionally by some of the biggest websites on the web. And in terms of what it actually is in the technical sense, um, the best way to do it is this lovely illustration that I stole off the internet here. Where essentially imagine you're sitting in a restaurant like you do and you order your drink, your coffee, your cake, your each uh, plate and meal individually. And when you make a connection to a browser, a website, generally speaking, downloads on HTTP 1 one bit of information at a time. Whereas HTTP 2 can request your whole meal at once and it can push it straight to your website, which as a result can um, give the essentially speed boosts. So in the case of Cloudflare, where they increased, uh, sorry, they enabled HTTP 2 for their customers, they've seen it decrease load time for customers on average by 52%. Now that is a very dramatic number. I don't think everyone here will see that. Maybe more in the 10 to 15% range if done properly. But it's definitely something you should be looking at, and most people aren't doing it. So in terms of how you do it, there's a couple of techie steps. So the first thing is business case. So you want to see what percentage of your visitors actually browse your site with a HTTP2 um, compatible browser. Most modern browsers now do. So we're already talking in the, so an example, I've got a client that deals with ironmongery, and most of their business is tradesmen. And the most popular browser for their site is Internet Explorer 11, which may sound weird to everyone here. But in the case of the people who are using that, like people like my dad who run trade businesses, it doesn't actually sound that silly. And you can easily check within um, Google Analytics whether or not people use a HTTP2 browser. The most important thing is also checking your server's operating system. The f in, in the simplest sense, it should be like flicking on a light switch HTTP2 if you then follow through with looking at the speed optimization for it. Um, and there's a tool called Built With, a Chrome extension that allow you to actually understand what operating system your site actually has and you can see there a couple of version numbers of um, which actually have HTTP2 enabled. 
And lastly, SSL certificate. Your site really, in order to benefit this, needs to be secure. Most browsers will ignore HTTP2 requests on non-secure sites. So I've also actually written a whole 2,000 word guide on HTTP2 and why it's cool. And you can see it on the State of Digital website. And you can see just a little link there where you can get more information on how to do it. So I'm now going to go into site speed tactics. So I imagine everyone here has probably heard of the Google Page Insights tool. But the problem with this tool and ones like it, they can be a little bit like this dog, which is, you know, I like dogs, but you know, you can teach a dog to catch a ball, bring it back to you. And the problem with these page insights tools is they work in a similar way. They have a checklist, they check against them, and it, and it, and it just brings you it back if you haven't done it. And the problem with these tools is that although they give fantastic advice, they don't bear in mind the context of your website or structure or the current kind of barriers you're going to face. So I'm going to go through six different recurring site speed suggestions and give a bit of guidance on my kind of eight years of doing this of where I think things could be ignored or scaled or improved upon, basically. And I'll also gauge the room on each one just to guess who's, who knows what so I can give explanations. So the first one I'm going to go through is combining, reducing JavaScript files and CSS files. Does anyone here not know what that principle is? Or no? You don't know what it is, Kevin? Sure. A bit. A bit? Okay, well, just for you, it's basically the um, process of um, most sites have lots of different um, CSS and JavaScript files, and a common optimization suggestion is to combine those and reduce them because it requires less requests from the browser. So it's quite common to do that. The problem is, is that there are certain files when everyone, so it used to be this classic thing of when I used to work in-house that you get a site speed audit done and someone say, you've got too many files, just reduce them please. And it just produces a list of the ones in the page insights tool. Well, if you have a website, a modern website, most of them now will probably use some form of library. In the case of CSS, that might be Bootstrap. In the case of JavaScript, that might be like D3 or jQuery. And it, to me, it doesn't make sense to actually combine and reduce those files, because those are externally looked after by a community who are constantly updating that and aiding your web developers in the process of making your website better. So therefore, it is harder to maintain that code base if you look to combine that. Similar thing applies for files generated by CMS plugins. If you use WordPress, Drupal, Magento, you're probably going to have a number of external plugins, Yoast being probably the most popular one in this room, and they all generate sometimes their own CSS and JavaScript, and it doesn't make sense to actually look to combine that. Same thing goes for sign-up forms or A-B testing. And lastly, analytics tracking. Similar sort of thing, really. It's um, dependent on which kind of tracking um, tags you use. It might be an externally hosted JavaScript file. And in those cases, I would ignore those suggestions. Combine the ones where essentially a web developer felt it necessary to have separate CSS files to, I don't know, because they've got some sort of weird OSD, OCD. The next one is minification. So in the case of um, minification, this is just basically taking all the white space out of your code when you view it in the uh, page source. And the problem with this is scaling up. How do you hell do you go through 2 million, 3 million, 1 billion euros in the case of my latest client in terms of minification? Well, there's a couple of server-side um, plugins that I would look to use. So Google has a JS closure compiler that can go through all the different um, page files, sorry, rendered pages and also strip out the white code within JavaScript. And there's also an interesting project on GitHub called the HTML minifier that essentially does the same thing. So you can implement this suggestion at scale. And if you're a smaller site, you can also use something like minify.org for JavaScript and CSS in order to get this done. The next one is tag bloat. So 
I, the reason I come up with this is because a project we recently did was, um, and you get to say this now, the web is old now. You know, we've got clients who the website's been around for 20 years. And often in the case of this client, they had like 30 tags that they were firing, but half, and we said, okay, let's get a list of them. So we generated a list of all the firing tags. They didn't know what half of them were. Some of them from Sandra who left five years ago and now does something else. And there's this classic thing or tools that they're paying for and no longer using. And it's just slowing the website down. It's such an obvious thing to actually look at. I mean, dealing with this is just an exercise in project management. You know, you can use something like Google Tag Assistant to build a list of all the tags that are currently firing on your site. And then you can do a round robin in the organization of, do you know what this is? What does this do? Do I need it anymore? Or in the case of this particular client, they were still using both universal analytics firing and also classical Google Analytics firing. So you get a lot of duplicate or redundant tags that appear occasionally. And it's just, it's just remove the useless tags and you equal profit. Something that I think only a lot of legacy e-commerce brands face, but I think it's something that probably a lot of people face here, regardless of whether it being Google Tag Manager, Bright Tag, or whatever. The next one is inline code. So this in particular, I even have an argument about this um, this morning, about the, the, the reason why inline code is, is a bad thing and why you should do it. To me, the, the case for inline code is, is, is only ever justifiable from the developer's point of view, because it makes their life easier. But the problem with using inline code rather than templates is it makes it harder to maintain. It's harder to, it's easier to update a template that influences your whole site rather than just individual snippets on a page. It results in unused code potentially, where you're just seeing it again and again, it's not actually been using that page. And it will overwrite the default styles in the browser if it's not implemented carefully. So that's just a quick one, and I just like that gif and the cone of shame. I threaten my employees with the cone of shame sometimes. Um, so the next thing is image compression. Similar sort of thing is scaling image compression. So Google actually has uh, brought out a new kind of lossless web dot, sorry, dot WebP image format in the past couple of years, and it actually can um, is now being supported in both Safari and Google Chrome. And it's a very interesting in terms of how it compresses compared to PNGs and JPEGs. So you can see there up to about 30% um, faster performance in terms of both. And um, on this side now, there's a, on the actual official website for the WebM project, there's actually a, a server-side plugin that will go through your images, compress them, and spit them out so they can be used in each of the hosted pages. And also, um, if that's not possible, um, what I would, uh, if you could also use the um, Photoshop plugin. So they've got a Photoshop plugin now that allow your designer to actually save them in that format too. So to me, again, it feels like your entire code base is just run by Google, which it will be. Um, but essentially, it allows you to do things in a lot more compressed fashion, which is a usual suggestion of lossless files. So alternatively, there is Compressor.io that allows you on a paid plan to upload in bulk, but also you can feed through individual images on there and get a similar kind of result, essentially. So what I will flag, because I know when those very quickly, because it's hard to gauge who knows what, <laughs> but essentially, HTTP2 does in some cases actually eliminate the need for some of these typical sites feed hacks. So Google PageSpeed Insights doesn't yet bear in mind whether or not the site is HTTP2 or not. And there are certain things in which you may want to consider not doing if it's a gesture. So for example, a common suggestion is an image sprite. So I love describing image sprites because I get to talk about video games. So if you've ever played something like Mario and you've seen him running along the little platforms or what he's doing, essentially what you're seeing there is some artist has got a piece of paper down, has drawn every individual frame of Mario and then covered it with a piece of paper and then cut out a window just to show the bit where he's standing, then walking, then walking, then walking. And that's essentially what an image sprite is. And they're used across the web constantly to help improve the visual experience of when hovering over a button that it instantly changes color, or a banner goes behind it and changes. 
But the, the reason why that was implemented was, again, to reduce the number of requests a browser needs to make, because it was in this methodology of doing them one at a time. But when you're asking for everything at once, the need for an image write becomes redundant, so therefore you no longer have to load for the user all these images you may or may not potentially use. On a similar note, there's domain sharding. So domain sharding was a hack for HTTP1 that allowed to trick the browser into opening multiple connections, essentially, which allowed multiple things to be requested at once. And with HTTP2, you can use smart domain sharding, which I, they call it smart domain sharding, but actually it's just an on-off button saying, if this site is on HTTP2, please do not use, essentially. And then lastly, there's this idea of master CSS and JavaScript files. So a lot of weird feedback from that speaker. Um, and it goes back to my initial suggestion of combining and reducing JavaScript and CSS. With HTTP2 and things being requested as and when you need them and all at once, it takes us to this territory where it's an interesting idea that what you could do is dynamically generate CSS and JavaScript on the fly as and when you need it, which could go back to inline code, but we'll, we'll worry about that later. Um, so lastly, the CDNs. So CDNs, I mean, CDNs, if you don't know what they are, they're a great place to host your media on an external place, and it will deliver the content faster because usually the CDN server is located to where you are. So therefore, it's a faster way for the user to download images, videos, and files, so on and so forth, and also allows in high traffic situations. And CDA Finder, I don't work for them, but this is a great tool that I recommend to all my clients who just ask what CDN we should use because it's just it's subjective based on all these variables, and it's a good way to find out which one you could use based on budget time and resources. So the last call of new speed tech that I want to go through is Google AMP. So who hasn't heard of Google AMP? Let's try that way, because that way I can skip it. Everyone's heard of it, which is good. Okay, so I can just skip by that. Oh, no, someone's, you said no again, Kevin. Well, I really don't want to know about this. Well, that's fine, I'm not going to tell you. So that's fine. That's fine, just leave. Okay. <laughs> Um, so on Google AMP, um, what's interesting now is actually used on 600 million pages across 700,000 domains. So it is actually working as a project from Google, which is quite interesting. And actually, what you may not know is that AMP support has expanded. So everyone knows it works in news and potentially recipes also. But recently, they've started experimenting with property listings, which is interesting in that perspective, and also e-commerce products. So a few months ago, eBay actually started serving up to 8 million of their URLs in AMP. And one of China's biggest retailers, can't remember it, its name.com, has also just started doing this very recently in the past week too. So as a technology, it's really starting to take off. And in terms of the business case, at least for me, it's, it's definitely something we've seen on our own site. So here you can see an example of a normal page and the version compared to AMP. And actually, when you compare the two, we actually seen a result of up to 71% faster. So that's a very individual example for editorial, but you can see across the board why is the technology it's really compelling on mobile devices. And one of the newest kind of inclusions in terms of AMP is the idea of accelerated mobile links. So now, if you, um, AMP pages can start speaking within each other, or even non-AMP pages can be speak within each other, so that if you click on a result on a normal page, it will then load the next page in its AMP version, which is quite interesting. So you can see, again, Google getting this ecosystem of the whole web. Um, for those of you who have implemented AMP, um, you can use um, both the official Accelerated Mobile Pages plugin and also Glue for Yoast SEO, which I learned about at Nick's presentation at Brighton SEO two years ago. So the, well, last year. Well, yeah, one year ago. God, I'm living in the past. Um, <laughs> and there's also the AMP project um, documentation, which you can also use to help you implement this. So in terms of page use modules, it's also really good that uh, Google, again, has a interesting server-side module that allows you to actually automate some of these things I suggested. So if you're able to put this in your server, it will help you automatically combine and minify alongside optimizing images and extending the browser cache. 
And there's also a bunch of WordPress plugins that I'd recommend too, if set up carefully. So WP Smush can optimize your images on demand. W3 Total Cache is better for smaller sites that can handle page caching. Very easy to get that one wrong. And Page Insights, um, it's an unofficial plugin, but it allows you to actually get a customized dashboard of how your site is actually doing in terms of Google Page Insights on a kind of daily basis, essentially. Or you can use the tool which you'll have available in about a month from ourselves. Um, if you need a kind of second check, I'd recommend using Pingdom Tools. As a result of using the API for this presentation, we've seen that actually within Pingdom Tools, there's a couple of actual performance insights which you don't get from Google, which is quite nice in terms of a checklist. And one other thing that I'd suggest doing is actually looking at how your web page actually loads in real time. So within Chrome, you can use the developer tool section to actually get a timeline of how a website actually loads, scripts, renders, and paints. And this is really good for identifying the pinpointed problems of actually what is actually slowing the site down. Because you can see in a visual timeline of where the kind of bloat is existing, essentially. So you know what to zoom in and focus on. So. That's it in terms of site suite tactics, and I want to kind of close in terms of looking at where I think we're going, essentially. So um, if you don't know already, most people actually prefer using applications over browsers when they're on their mobile device now to connect to the internet. And one of the biggest business cases for this is that it's just faster. And that, I think, is a huge response to the way in which the web is failing at getting any faster, essentially. And Google's own response to this is, is the sense that now we're seeing things like app indexing, where now, if you have the app, in your phone, essentially you can Google for a restaurant in Southbank and you can click on the result and it will load the page within the app that you have. And now we're going to start seeing this go even further. So now whether or not you have the app or not on an Android device, um, developers are now have the ability to start building in app streaming technology into their apps so that that way you're getting this whole new ecosystem of using Google to search for information, clicking on a link and it always opens it within the app whether you have it or not, basically cutting out the need for a website which is quite interesting. But I think the web has a long way to go, and I, I think I don't want to be in a world where instant apps um, potentially dominate one day, especially when we look at all the exciting developments in speed tech now that you can use in order to improve the site, except instant apps, they're bad. And then and there's also another tons of, um, I thought it was my phone for a second then. Oh, God, that. Um, and there's also tons of ways in which you can actually improve site speed through hopefully some of the taxes that I just took you there. So we can start burning money and start making more money, basically. And that's the end of the presentation. Thank you very much. Okay. Any questions? Just studying your analytics to see what percentage of your traffic is using HTTP2 browsers. Yeah. What sort of figures? Oh, I see, I see. Um, well, I guess I start from a place of looking at can I use.com first to see which browsers use and actually support HTTP2. And the simple answer is the majority, I guess. You know? What I will say, in the case of HTTP2, whether they have it or not, there is, it does actually fall back. So if the user doesn't have it, it will actually, they'll see the site in HTTP1 anyway. Which is obviously the case in a big company is more compelling if the fact the majority of your users can now use that sort of traffic. Um, with Taglog, who are the worst offenders? Who are the worst offenders? In terms of all the, the tags in general, like is it GA, is it... Oh, I see. Oh, I see. Yeah. Whew, that is a question that I don't know if I'm political enough to answer. Um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think now of the specific client that we did this for and what tags were they using. But 
They definitely, Omnitrol was definitely a tag that we ditched. No, Omnitrol was a tag that was a heavy bloat, but they didn't want to ditch it just in case because they still had like, like a three-year contract they had to run out, even though no one uses it in the organization anymore. But I don't know, I don't know. Off the top of my head, I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry, I'm looking at you. Sorry, I should have went, yes, please, sir. Yeah. So um, if you were to choose one of the elements to sort out first, that would yeah. be the greatest benefit for speed. Yeah. Which one you, would you pick? Good question. I'm going to have a look at my own suggestions and then I'm going to tell you. Well, I mean, I, it's, it's kind of difficulty rating versus effort. I mean, I'd start off with tag bloat because I can just do that and I don't need a developer, I guess is the first thing. And then I'd probably, um, after that, move on to HTTP2 because, in, because we've, we've seen it as a case that's easy to make, if that makes sense. And then I'd move on to the others. Is that right? Yeah? yeah. Okay. Do you disagree? Why? Which one? Do, which would you do first? Why ask me that? Because <laughs> <laughs> I think no, I wouldn't disagree as such. Yeah. <laughs> more like the question was, which one will give you the best benefit immediately? Oh, HTTP two. If you don't have it enabled, is that right? <laughs> no. It's still dependable on HTTPS, so yeah. Yeah. Oh, then okay. Then afterwards, well, CDN. <laughs> All of them. Okay, cool. Sorry, hey Lucas. Hi, we know I'm a big fan of your presentation. Oh, no, I didn't know that. I thought you'd just been blowing smoke, to be honest. Well, my question actually is a bit different. Now, if you feel a bit scared about, because you mentioned yeah. uh, AMPs, that they will be linked with each other right now. Mm. And it's technically that you're serving your content under someone else's domain. So the next little step, yeah, I mean, I know that in, in the case of AMP pages that, you know, you, you're hosting on your own site and Google's taking a cache of them, so it's technically they'd have to inject it while they serve it, so but I, I don't, I don't think they do that. I can see why, you know, in evil thinking, I think you could do. I don't think they do that. Do you think they do that? No. Just messing with me. Sorry, Kevin, I'll come to you. Sorry. If um, if it's just a copy of the page, why is it when you swipe left and right it goes faster? <laughs> <laughs> because it's just quicker than press. Because why wouldn't people just press back and then click on the next one anyway? I guess that's the logic there. So that was Pete Campbell from Kaizen. Remember to check out the slides that go with that talk at digitalmarketingradio.com slash episode 201. That completes the trio of episodes from Search London. Let me know your thoughts on this episode format. Do you want to hear more? Do you want to hear less of this episode type? Tweet me at David Bain to tell me your views. Next episode... We're going to be back to the regular format with a return of the this or that round and all that jazz. So until we meet again, be fantabulous and do one thing that scares you. Adios. Digital marketing radio, digital marketing.